Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another video episode of Pottywood. I am one of your co-hosts, Steve Hester, and with me, as always, is... That'll be me, Andrew Roger Carson. Uh, looking really forward to delving into the post-summer release schedule for 1992 of Warner Brothers. And joining us, we can't do a show on Warner Brothers without the former senior vice president himself, Bill Daly. How are you, Bill? Yes, I'm doing very well. Senior vice president. Yes. Do you realize I had the same title as Jack Warner? Oh. No, when Jack Warner was there, he was senior vice president. Honest to God. There you go. Yeah, we, we can't argue with that. But what we can argue with is some of the movies that came out the year. We had a couple of box office bombs. We had some of the biggest successes, Certified Fresh, Certified Rotten. But we've chosen five for this episode that were released from September to December. And obviously... We had some there that was uh, an indie hit, some that was a bit of a box office bomb, and some of them were absolutely huge uh, still to this day. So we're going to start off here with Cameron Crowe's kind of, I guess it was kind of an indie darling movie, Singles. Was that a um, story it, about it a certainly of cheese slices? It, it, yes, it was. Um, it was... Um, it was a fascinating process, this movie. It was, um, they were banking on um, a younger crowd coming in. That there's, um, there's always this push at the studios to, or there was, I don't know what the post-pandemic world is going to be like, um, but there was always a push to bring younger audiences into the theaters, get them away from the VCRs and their TV sets and bring them into the theaters. Now it's getting them away from their game consoles and their yeah. iPhones. Um, so singles um, and Cameron Crowe um, always seemed to have his finger on the pulse of what younger people were doing. He, his, um, his experience, you know, is a, um, I think he was a Rolling Stone reporter or yes. something like that. Mm. Um and this this movie was before he did Almost Famous, you know, and and all that stuff. But he had been Jerry quite McGuire. successful. Yeah, yeah, he had been quite successful um, doing films before Warner Brothers brought him in. And and Warner Brothers is always I mean, it's a big studio, so they're always interested in bringing people in that um, that are very good at what they do. And um, Singles was. Um, very different. It had an ensemble cast. Um, I think pretty much the lead, I think, was Bridget Fonda. Bridget Fonda, time. Matt Dillon. Um, I've got to be wrong and probably say Liv, not Liv Tyler. No. Um, You're probably thinking of Empire Records for some reason. I've got it no, down no. here. Well, it was around that kind of period, and it's that same kind of, I guess, model they were going for empire yeah. records is very similar in that respect um i was gonna say but this was an I ensemble cast and it was exploring um single single people and um it was shot in seattle seattle was quite the production hub in those days um and it fueled only a little bit by the um by tax incentives we hadn't fully gotten into um, the big push for tax incentives yet, but Seattle seemed to be quite 
the place for everybody to shoot. And right before this, you know, like three years earlier, Chicago was the big place. Everybody wanted to go to shoot. And before that, Florida. Um, it's everything seems to go in cycles. And, and now they have the tax deals. So right now, Georgia and New Mexico are the really big places now. Um, but singles was um, everybody loved the script. I don't think I don't think everybody absolutely understood what was going on with it or could visualize it. I know I read the script and I had a hard time visualizing um, what this was and how these relationships are going to develop what they what the different little stories how they would tie together um and the filmmakers after they finished shooting it and they started they did the director's cut and we did previews and then the studio gave them notes and they went back and this was a process that took over a year i mean post-production they wrapped the movie and a year later, they were still in post-production. But every time, I mean, the studio, I'm not aware of any kind of push to shut it down because we've we've been doing this for too long, you know, which certainly we did a movie a year before. Um, we did two movies a year before. Uh, we did, um, the movie came out, Nothing But Trouble. The original title was Vulcanvania. It was a Dan Aykroyd um, directed. It was his first directorial thing. Um, total bomb. Total bomb. Total piece of crap. Deserved to bomb. Um, you know, but Chevy Chase was still kind of hot then. Taylor Negron had developed a little bit of heat. Uh, Demi Moore was really big at the time, you know, in that movie. And I, I don't mean to give them a whole lot of time, but <clears throat> there was a movie that just took incredibly long to finish in post-production went through all these different iterations and i think finally at the end of the day as danny devito used to say you know art great art <laughs> i don't know that very many his things qualify as great art but you know great art is never really finished it's abandoned you know yeah um so and then we defending your life I think was um, was in 1991 as well. And that was another film uh, with Albert Brooks at the helm. He was also in it, um, but they seem to be doing post-production forever, you know, but, and the point I'm trying to make here with the exception of, of um, nothing but trouble, like defending your life and um, singles, every time we screened it, there was, there were marked improvements in what we were seeing. You know, the movie was making more sense and it was and it was getting better and better and better. And you couldn't shut it down. You couldn't abandon it because you wanted to see how it was going to happen, what was going to happen with it. We should have done documentaries. If, you know, if, if I had yeah. a time machine, you know, one of the things I would do besides murdering Donald Trump's parents is um, <laughs> I would go back and I would have a documentary crew follow albert brooks and and um and cameron crow through the process of making these movies because it was fascinating it was just fascinating to see these projects evolve you know and the yeah. studio was not constantly harping on them you know because i've seen that done too where the execs like harp on everybody to get it done and get it done you know, and uh, and one way to ensure that a project gets done is you give them another project to do. <laughs> Suddenly, <laughs> their attention goes on to something else, and they've got to finish it. 
you know. But singles was um, just an incredible experience. It really was. And um, and if the people involved in in creating that movie were of lesser quality, you know, as as people, um, it wouldn't have been so. But they were just wonderful to work with. Everybody was just wonderful to work with. And and the same thing on Defending Your Life, you know. Um, Not to say that Dan Aykroyd and everybody weren't, because they were too. But um, the material they were working with was just um, short of the mark that Defending Your Life and Singles were. That's a very good diplomatic way of putting it. Very diplomatic. But it's true. true. Uh, Looking at the the scores down here on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, just as we did with the last episode, this is probably the most even out of all of the movies that we've talked about so far. You're looking at a 73% audience score and a 79% critic score, registering it certified fresh. And deservedly so. so. Yeah, deservedly so. And and it's amazing to me that the critics liked it even more than than the audience did, you know, because it was uh, because they tend to be they try to be sophisticated. I, I use that expression all the time talking about critics. They try to be sophisticated. And if you look at the root word of how sophisticated, you know, what sophisticated means, you know, one of the definitions is phony. Okay. So <laughs> not that it's a phony definition, but sophisticated equals phony. So um, <laughs> so I find myself with a smile on my face going back to that, um, that word all the time. Um, you know, they try to impress everybody. So most of them are really, really good writers. I would hate to have that job. I would hate to have to watch um, the crap that they have to watch. I mean, you're going to see, it's the same thing with my career at Warner Brothers. It was great to do Harry Potter and Lethal Weapon and Batman and Superman and all, you know, these great, great, great movies, The Matrix and all. But there was an awful lot of crap in there. Our, our um, business model is 24 movies a year. You know, you're lucky to get four really, really, really good ones. You know, you do get some surprising ones. You get some pot boiler ones. You get um, some really safe moves there. And then you get absolute dribble. You know, I mean, stuff that is only there to fill out the calendar. You know? I don't know about Jonah Hex. Let's talk no, yeah. about. But that's how, but no, you know, Jonah, Jonah Hex started out with the best of intentions. Nobody starts out to make a crappy movie, you know? Yeah. But um, they ha- it happens. Not everything is going to work out the way. Not everybody is an, as an effective communicator as others. Because that's, that's what this business is in the end. You're, you're communicating. And um, sometimes people aren't really imparting the, mes- the message the way it should be. Or we're not getting it. You know, it's clear to them what they're saying, but it's not clear to anybody else. Um, no, good point. Well, in, in talking about singles here, uh, this film has now kind of become synonymous with um, the kind of emergence of the grunge music scene. So you had bands like Nirvana, Soundgarden, and this was the first real movie that showcased all of that and kind of rise, well, risen it up into the mainstream and and that is why it is held in such high regard now apparently well, and cameron crowe took this production to seattle to shoot it yeah and and that would grunge is a seattle-based movement exactly you know? he was in the uh, right place at the right time the the word 
uh, online is that Warner Brothers held the film for nearly nine months, unsure what to do with it until Nirvana put Seattle on the map. Uh, I don't know that that's entirely true um, be, because they were working the, the whole time. And as I said, we, we celebrated a one-year anniversary, 12 months. Wow. And, and we weren't even finished yet. We weren't even close to being finished yet. Um, and I don't, I don't remember from 30 years ago exactly how long that was in post-production. But I do remember the one-year anniversary of it because it became a joke. We would, my assistant Elizabeth and I would go to the cutting room and, and, and we would tease them about it in a very good-natured way, you know, because we weren't telling them to get it done. I was sorry to see them leave, to tell you the truth. Yeah. They were so, such wonderful people. I think um, the only person with, who's so. going to beat that record is Richard Mirish on The Flash. <laughs> it could be, yeah. And is, and is he coming up with to two of, years, Richard? Come on. Is he? I hope he's working with a group of wonderful people. I mean, I really don't know. Is he? Uh, but I hope so. Well, from from what I hear, he is. Yeah, good. you know, well, good. Yeah. to kind yeah. of work on that kind of project and under that amount of pressure. That well, that's because under. of the visual effects. I mean, the visual visual effects are so demanding. Yeah. And, and although he is great, he's not told me to think about it, but he keeps saying, wait until you see it. So with him saying that, it's like, okay. If, well, that was like me with The Matrix. Uh, yeah. There's no way to describe some of the stuff that you're doing, you know? So, So one last question on singles. Without the movie singles, would we even have the TV show Friends? Because apparently, I have singles answer. was supposed to be a TV series that then morphed into Friends. Well, Friends is actually um, a ripoff of a British TV series. So the question on its relationship to singles would depend on those producers in Britain and, and um, whether they were influenced by it. No, the friends is you know like all in the family um was some other british tv show and i don't know the title um sanford and, St and son was steptoe and son in britain mm -hmm. you know and and the office of course originated in britain with ricky gervais but yep. um but singles there was a british version of singles before or of um uh, friends before friends came on the air Really? I have not heard yes. this one. No, yes. I haven't even heard that before. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Was was there a TV series called Chums, which I I, I didn't <laughs> I missed at some point? No, I can't honestly think because I I know that there was. And if it was this guy, it would be old men, right? Yeah. yeah. What do you say, old man? <laughs> right. No, seriously, friends. Um, there, there's a trivia question for you to, to seek out. I, I can't tell you the title because I, I don't know what it is. But I do know that Friends, the, the, the idea, it's not that they licensed it. The idea for Friends, in my opinion, in my, it's my true belief that it was, before I, before I slander anybody, um, my belief is that there was a British TV show that heavily influenced the creation of Friends. Oh, well, Wolf. if anyone out there knows, we want to know. Uh, send out the comments. Marta, Marta Kaufman. <laughs> okay. <It's Yeah>. always... <laughs> she went to school. <laughs> She's younger than me, but she went to a, a rival high school of mine. <laughs> well, getting around to the Halloween period uh, in 1992, uh, we would see 
Warner Brothers released the vampire movie Innocent Blood. Uh, John I love Landis that movie. I <laughs> love that movie. Filmed in your native Pittsburgh, I will say. No, I'm from Philadelphia. It's my native Pennsylvania. Oh, native Pennsylvania. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so with this movie, uh, the first thing I'm going to say here, apparently John Landis was not the original director on it. Apparently it was Jack Shoulder. Is that correct? Um, oh, man, you're... Um... I don't know what to say. <laughs> um, I I had this really bad attitude about John Landis because of Twilight Zone. And I used yes. to go around all the time. I would say to people, you know, John, Land I can't work with John Landis. He kills actors. You know, it's just I had this bad attitude. Never having met him, you know. This was down to the... Um... and But, um, but I'm, I'm telling you, and I love Jack Shoulder. Um, I've only worked with him on TV things, okay? Because he's done TV movies and um, and TV shows. I did TV shows with him. Um, and I love Jack Shoulder. He's really, really good guy, and he's a good director and all that. But if, if Jack was doing this movie, it never would have gotten finished. Okay. We'd be talking that, about that instead of single. Okay. John Landis was absolutely the right guy for this. And John Landis is so nice. He is such a nice guy. I felt so bad about bad mouthing him before I ever met him. And um, I mean, he really, really is a good guy. And um, the Twilight Zone is um, ultimately, I think, his fault. But um, it's just a, it's, it's a tragedy it, it, in every way. In, in every possible way, it's a tragedy. And it was, um, they, they did things in production that they, um, they got away with things they, you know, they, and they would have gotten yeah. away with it hadn't it been, you know, the tragic circumstances, that helicopter coming down. Um, but if I had to choose, you know, th of course, I'm, this is after the fact. Yeah. Um, knowing what I know now, if I had to choose, John Landis absolutely was the right guy to go with it. So if you but have I love a Jack, but I love Jack Shoulder. Jack Shoulder would be a great director for your movie. <laughs> I know you want to direct it, you know, but deeper than six feet, Jack Shoulder would do a great job on that. Sure, I would. Jack Shoulder sounds like the name of a whiskey. Yeah, yes. it does. Yeah, yeah. No, I have this is um, this is the bottle right here. <laughs> yeah. My Jack shoulder. <laughs> well, apparently, uh, John Landis um, accepted the role of director on this following uh, a cancelled movie that he was going to do with Joel Silver called Red Sleep, which was a vampire movie about Wayne Newton being a vampire <laughs> in Las Vegas. Uh, Apparently, the movie was scrapped due to both John Landis' movie Oscar bombing at the box office and Joel Silver's Hudson Hawk failure uh, just the year before. Is this true? Well, I would attribute the... I mean, that's possible. Anything is possible. I didn't realize John Landis did Oscar. And Oscar, I would lay at the doorstep of Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. And Hudson Hawk, I would lay at the doorstep of Bruce Willis. Yes. Yeah, I've, I've 
got a little bit of a soft spot for Oscar. I've got a bit of a soft spot for both of them movies yeah. because you know they're they're kind of historic for being what they are. And when you kind of look at them in the kind of time machine and look at them years later, it's like I'm not turning them off. I'm no. finding well, enjoyment are, from them. Yeah, these are examples of movies that um that I always say should be put into a time capsule, you know because they reflect a period in ways that um that other movies don't you know you go mm. you if you wanted to create a time capsule for that for the early 90s um those are great examples of what people were like what they dressed like what the architecture was like what cars were like what styles i mean both of those movies were made at a time when when those actors and those kinds of movies are very very popular so they're very indicative of the time period in which they were produced. So they they belong in a time capsule, as does, uh, well, Slapshot. Slapshot yeah. is a time capsule. If you look at that, um, I don't know what the ice hockey thing is like in Great Britain. And I was never a huge fan of ice hockey. I don't even know how to skate. I admire them that they can skate and do all that stuff and beat each other up while they're balancing on these little blades. Um, so I, I admire their um, their ability and their um, athleticism, but I'm not a huge fan of hockey. I don't get it. I don't like being in the cold. I don't like going to hockey games because I have to take a coat with me, <laughs> you know. Um, but Slapshot, I mean, aside from being just one of the most hilarious movies you will ever see in your life, is a time capsule of the mid 70s when you look at the sh the platform shoes they're wearing and the and the fake leather jackets and the and the, the double knit um polyester suits and everything they're wearing you know a run down um town Johnstown Pennsylvania is where they shot it but this run down industrial town where the factories are leaving and everything it's um and that was a big concern for a lot of people in, um, especially in the Northeast of the United States at that period. So, um, I mean, that, that movie is a time capsule. Right. And talking about uh, innocent blood uh, and getting to the point of, uh, I guess, post-production, uh, Anne Pirillard, I believe that is how you say her name, was a huge hit in La Femme Nikita from Luc Besson, which obviously went on to become uh, Point of No Return or The Assassin, starring Bridget Fonda, yeah. who probably would never make a movie with John Landis, we'll put it that way. Um, apparently, Anne Perillard was severely dubbed due to preview audiences not understanding her at all. Yeah, that was a concern. That was a huge concern, and I don't know how much of her was dubbed. And it, it was a it was a pity too. I had seen La Femme Nikita, and um, I was I was amazed at the transformation. They not just in the character, but the way that they made her look. I mean, she was so scuzzy in the beginning, and then you know, and so poised and and beautiful at the end, and everything. Um, and Speaking of which, your cat's just crawled onto the counter behind yeah, you. I see him. Beautifully yeah. poised. Bill, we can see your pussy. <laughs> That's a shame, isn't it? <laughs> well, you can tell that the whiskey's Natural kicking ginger. 
<laughs> that's that's his name is Soba. Um, I sometimes call him Buster. I call him Soba more because Buster implies like Buster. If a girl calls you Buster, okay. So if you if you're on a date with a girl and you've only dated her a few times or whatever, okay. And and you're making out with her and, and your hands start to roam. And if she says to you, where do you think you're going, Buster? You know you're not going to score. Okay. Mm-hmm. Look at him. <laughs> um, so, so I he just seemed like a Buster to me when we when we first brought him home. Okay. But he's been eclipsed by this absolute terror <laughs> right here. <laughs> this guy is a terror his name is his real name is sylvester but he's known as corkhead in this house um anyway you, we're, this we're talking about we're, we're talking about innocent blood we're not talking about <laughs> we're not talking about anybody's pussy here we're talking about innocent blood uh innocent um, blood is oh, for, 38% critics, 45% audience. Yeah, but, you know so, what? but they don't know what they're talking about. I love this no. movie. I really do. I, I And I don't know why. I, I, I can't tell you why I love this movie. It was just, um, it was a great experience with everybody involved in it. And, and I like how it turned out. It, it really surprised me because I'm not, I don't care for vampire type things. I mean, they, they don't do anything at all for me. And um, I haven't revisited this film in quite a long time, but, but, um, but you know, Eddie Murphy did that one, Vampire Brooklyn or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is that mm-hmm. what it's called? You know, I've revisited yeah. that, and um, I haven't seen it through to the end because I turned it off. It's no, it's, so, it's, it's just, pretty bad. If, and, and you know what would have fixed that movie? If... if um, if it wasn't just a mediocre script and story with this vampire inserted into it, you know, yes. if they'd had a better story to tell, you know, that would be a much, much better movie, but they just, it's, it, it's missing from the script. I mean, the script is missing. Yeah. You know, they took a TV, they took a Kojak episode and inserted Eddie Murphy and all this vampire stuff into it. I mean, honestly, God, that's what it is. That's that's a pretty good parable, actually. Uh, also missing from Innocent Blood, apparently following uh, its first preview, fifteen to twenty minutes of the movie was cut out. Probably, but but they do that all the time, right? You and I, you and yeah. I personally have had this conversation about yes. twenty minutes too long. Okay, twenty minutes too long. It's the and name of our next movie. That's going to be the name of our next movie. It's going to be a short. It's and it's going to run 22 minutes. minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Honest to God, we're not joking. We're, yeah, being we're going to do we this. Are, we are going to do a short film. It's going to run 22 minutes, and we're going to name it. The title will be 20 minutes too long. <laughs> yeah. Well, unfortunately... It um, won't feel like that, though. No. No. Unfortunately, for a movie featuring um, Robert Laguerre, Don Rickles, and a hell of a lot of directors in small roles, as John Landis was known to do. Yeah. The movie, unfortunately, was a box office bomb, making only five million back from its twenty million budget. That's why um, John Landis didn't come back. I think and that's why there was no Innocent Blood two. 
Well, as... there was a Beverly Hills Cup three. <laughs> well, but that was at Paramount, and they yeah. they struck gold when that was Martin Brest, right? They really well, struck gold for the first cast. one, yeah. Yeah, but with that, yeah, and the cast too. I mean, that cast was perfectly placed. Yeah, but John Landis, uh, uh, it's going to be interesting to see with Beverly Hills Cup for now. John Ashton has just gone back to LA to do some additional filming on Beverly Hills Cup 4. We cannot wait to see his return uh, to the role that made him famous. And it'll be interesting to see if they've erased Beverly Hills Cup 3 from the canon of Beverly Hills Cup movies due to the fact that everyone, nobody, I've never come across a person who liked Beverly Hills Cup 3 at all. No. Well, that was a cash grab. Yeah. When we were finishing up uh, the last of the Harry Potter films, um, I, I don't have this anymore. And maybe it's one of the reasons I'm no longer with Warner Brothers. Um, I made up a fake poster and it was Harry Potter and the cash cow with <laughs> complete with, you know, the, the, well, you saw the buck slip from the um, Order of the Phoenix, right? Yeah. Complete with that typeface and everything. And then, because um, those are two different typefaces, there's the Harry Potter one, which is the lightning bolts. And then the other one is called Lumos. The um, so if you can find fonts, if you can find a place that sells fonts, you, Lumos is the other one. So when you would see Harry Potter and Goblet of Fire or whatever, um, so I had those, and I created Harry Potter and a Cash Cow, and I had a cow with rolled up dollar bills being shat out its ass. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> we need to put this on the internet. Yes. Two weeks later, it. Bill was saying goodbye. I don't have it anymore, but you know, it's like. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, stuff being shot out of an ass, I guess we've got to move on to Under Siege. <coughs> okay, so what did you say was the budget on oh. Innocent Blood? Innocent Blood apparently was a 20 million budget and it made only 5 million. Wow. That, and that's not a huge budget. A huge no. budget at that time at Warner Brothers would have been 30 to 40 million. 20 million is, is big, but it's not a huge budget for, um, for that studio then. Yeah. John Landis was saying, you know, because the budget was so small, he had a lot of creative freedom in it. And it's not a bad movie. It, it's, it's not. Really, it's really not. Really I like good. this movie. I really like this movie a lot. Um, I guess they just couldn't find the audience. What was it? Uh, what did it come out against? Oh, God, what would be the Halloween movie? Let me see if I can find the release date. I bet you it was Candyman. Candyman came out in 92. So I reckon. Candyman would beat this? You gotta be kidding. I'm I'm looking at IMDb right now. I should be looking at Box Office Mojo. Yes, the more reputable place. It's owned by IMDb, they own Box Office Mojo. Honest to God, I'm not kidding. Well, you know what? While Steve actually does that, doing his research, we will move into... All right, then. I'll, yes. I'll do the box office mojo. Yes. So we're going to move into Under Siege here, yes. which is, I think, Steven Stagall's highest rated movie <laughs> out of everything he has ever done. And one of the only ones with only two letters, well, two words in its title. Um, Under Siege... Which was basically really? what's no? What's the two-word title? What's what's that all about? Under siege. Well, yeah. 
basically, when you look at Steven Seagal's movies, every one of them has three words in the title. Uh, apart from the ones, well, apart, funnily enough, apart from his best ones, <laughs> which were Executive Decision, which he was in yeah. 20 minutes, yeah. Yeah. and Under Siege. Now, Under Siege was what was very popular at the time, known as the Die Hard clone. Yes. So it was, oh, it's Die Hard on a bus. It's Die Hard in an airport. It's Die Hard on a ship right. in this case. Yes. Yeah. Now, the thing that I did notice about Under Siege, this is actually one of the highest grossing movies that was not pre-screened for critics. Really? I wonder why. Because it's a Steven Seagal movie. Mm. <laughs> um, Probably. No, but, well, we knew when we did that movie, um, there was an expectation that this was going to be um, more polished than your typical Steven Seagal fair. Steve, you know you're on camera. Um, <laughs> there was, um, we knew that this was not the typical Steven Seagal movie. He had he had a class A producer on it in Peter McGregor Scott. Yep. And he had um, Andy Davis as the director and Andy Davis, who was had a very, very good reputation for action movies that were yes. not the sort of dark, stupid exploitation movies that that Steven Seagal was known for, because that's that's what they are. It's just they're known as Steven Seagal movies because it's like Elvis movies, you know, yeah. exploitation. Martin and Lewis films, they're exploitation movies. Um but we knew going in that this um, that there was more substance to this movie, so there was an expectation that it would do better. And um, and and the thing was, the studio um, Stephen actually was a valuable asset to the studio, um, so the expectation was that it that this would benefit him and us. You know, to have Andy Davis. You know, and Peter McGregor Scott went on to do like a lot of our really, really big movies after this one, you know, Batman and Robin, you know, um, the, and before that, the other Joel Schumacher Batman thing, Peter, Peter McGregor Scott, they, they, those were our important properties and we put yeah. them in charge of it, you know, made a big announcement with Joel Schumacher coming on, you know, and letting people know that he was in charge of our most important asset. Okay. And then Joel, as only Joel can, <laughs> said, really? I thought, it, it, really? It's your most important asset is not Mel Gibson? I'm being put in charge of Mel Gibson? <laughs> 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 um, and so it's this, I mean, this was not, this was, it, it was not saving Private Ryan. But this right. was closer to like an A-list kind of movie. For Steven. And that's why it's his most successful one. He had a, you know, not that the other directors he worked with were not any good, but I mean, Andy Davis was a guy who really understands this kind of movie. Executive Decision would have done way, way, way better had uh, my wife just got home. Um, she's cuckooing to the cat. Can you hear that? No. Okay. Uh, I was wondering how uh, 
Oh, hold on a second. Made Honey, decision, you I'm are sorry. on the air, so I would I would advise you not to come back here. <laughs> oh, go right ahead. So, um, so now that we know executive clothes, decision would your, be much better if you put your clothes back on. <laughs> put your clothes back on. <laughs> yes. um, We're talking about Steven Seagal. He's not in the room. You're fine. <laughs> yeah. So, um, although I have to tell you, I, I never noticed the um, the three word title on Steven Seagal movies. For me. You know, my perception was that every Steven Seagal movie was something where you could say Steven Seagal is. Steven Seagal is, you know, out for blood or, what you know, Steven Seagal is above the law. Steven Seagal is under siege. Okay. So we had a title at the studio. We had this title and we were trying to develop at least six different movies just for this title, just so we could use this title. Okay. So it was, so as we're looking for the, the right movie to do this with, I come into the big meeting and I go, um, have you ever noticed that Steven Seagal, all of his movies are Steven Seagal is, you know, it's not like you can't say Sean Connery is Casino Royale. You know, it's it was Sean Connery is, you know, would be James Bond and everything. But Steven Seagal is above the law. Steven Seagal is marked for death. Steven Seagal is under siege. And Steven Seagal is the big title, addicted to love. <laughs> okay. And that, was, and that went, that, that's one of my jokes that went over really well. But it was just an observation. <laughs> it was just an observation that, you know, all of his movies were something where you could say Steven Skull is on the poster. Yeah. So <laughs> it never registered for me that they were all three words. Except in case, um, in the case of Under Siege, you could say in. <laughs> in would be the third word. <laughs> I think yeah. that also might be why the, the follow-up <laughs> didn't really work because then that's four words under siege to dark territory five words <laughs> technically yeah yeah <laughs> uh but this well, didn't do too badly uh 79 score with the critics 62 percent with audiences which is strange there's over fifty thousand reviews yeah. on the audience score so I would have thought it would be higher but yeah but you know uh, he was surrounded by a cast of uh people you know, th with lesser roles that were, you know, pretty not all like A-list actors, but you know, close to the top. There, Gary Busey, mm -hmm. who um, has starred in movies, but has always been better as um, as a supporting role. You know, yeah. um, Tommy Lee Jones as well. Um, Tom yeah, Tommy Lee Jones. I was just going to say, Tommy Lee Jones is another one that they put in there. Um, for him, and then they have your usual cast of characters who, who always played generals and admirals and police guys. John Mann, you know, Bernie Casey, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, they put so they put him with, uh, they put him together with Andy Davis's list of people that he could that he could bring on to the project. I don't know 
that um, the directors that Stephen was working with before that could have brought in all these other people to do this movie, you know? And, um, and you need to have a really good supporting cast. Even if they're people you recognize all the time, you need to have good supporting cast. Well, this was actually the first time that Steven Seagal worked with a director for the second time, because obviously he'd worked with Andrew Davis on his debut feature, Above the Law, released as Nico here in the UK. Mm-hmm. And apparently Andrew Davis was averse to working with Steven Seagal again in Under Siege, but it was Terry Semmel who informed uh, Andrew that Tommy Lee Jones was featured in the movie more than Steven Seagal. <laughs> it was more of a, yes. a Tommy Jones movie. And uh, this obviously ended up with Davis getting the chair for The Fugitive, which then led Tommy mm-hmm. Lee Jones to his Oscar. So yes. w- what do you know about this? Well, um, most directors were averse to working with Steven. And it's not because he's some raging asshole or anything like that, because um, he's not. Um, I know that he has a reputation for, I'm sorry, the whiskey went down the wrong tube here. <laughs> he has a, a reputation for hitting on women and stuff, you know, which is a big thing to me too right now. Um, and rightly so. And, and Stephen had that reputation even before people cared about that sort of thing. Um, the thing about Stephen, though, was that y- you would present him with a project and a script and he would immediately rewrite it. Yes. So suddenly you've got, you know, story by so-and-so, screenplay by, you know, and um, and that must, especially if you're a writer director, that must be the most annoying thing you can imagine. Because now you're sharing not only screen credit, but you're sharing Writers Guild um, residuals with this guy who hasn't created the characters. All he's doing is redoing dialogue that's more comfortable for him, or mm. action movements that are more comfortable for his sort of style. He his his particular martial arts thing is Aikido, which is most mostly slapping and grabbing and pushing sort of thing. I mean, that, that's yeah. the style. That's what it is. Um, so I can see where Andy, Day, if Andy was one of the credited writers of it, I can see where it would be a concern for him. I don't think Stephen was ever the kind of guy who held up production you know, by not coming out of his trailer or anything. I, I, I haven't heard, it's, anything is possible, but I never heard in all the years I was there where he was a problem on the set or this or that or anything. But I would hear complaints all the time about how he wanted to rewrite and he wanted to change the costumes. So you'd put him, and in that movie, in Under Siege, you'll notice he's wearing an apron most of the time. Because he was spending too much time at the craft service table. And I am not exaggerating. He was, he got, he was always, if you go back to um, his early stuff, like above the law, he was always kind of jowly, you know, always had this little kind of jowly thing going on. But he, but under stage, if you look closely, he's got a double chin almost in there. So they hid him behind an apron a lot. He didn't like the idea that he was wearing um, the Navy outfits and stuff so i don't know what's on underneath the apron and all but um and then that became really funny too because that that became one of the kind of funny taglines is i'm just a cook i'm just a cook 
you know. Um, so, and then on executive decision, that was when he was brought on to executive decision, that was the first thing. He wanted to change the wardrobe. The guy's supposed to be a fucking Delta Force guy or whatever the hell that, you know, they are. Some some sort of special forces. And now they're wear, wearing all black. You know, right? Is yeah. that what they're wearing in the, you know? And that's not just Steven Seagal thing. It's, um, you know, it's not, not even original. Yeah. Johnny Cash was the man in black. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. I mean, in, in looking at um, Under Siege after all of these years, I mean, obviously the, the thing for us, it's always remember Erica Eleniak popping out of the cake. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're a teenage boy, I think that yeah. was pretty much everything in a movie. Yeah. The, yeah. the real highlight of that movie. Well, when she popped out of the cake at the premiere, she got a big hand. And, I bet she um, did. I'm sure there was more than one. I'm sure there was, she felt several. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting in probably her chair the <laughs> most damaged section on a VHS tape. <laughs> Same uh, yes. basic instinct. No, it, it's yeah. very true that the uh, uh, in the UK, probably in the US as well, the biggest complaint of Under Siege was on VHS in rental stores was that scene was worn out <laughs> constantly. Yeah. yeah, I can see that. But yeah, uh, amazingly, that. Um, that role originally, Pamela Anderson went to audition with that and she had basically a casting couch proposition from Steven Seagal saying... Uh, and I quote from Pamela Anderson that if Pamela Anderson didn't do it, the next girl who came into the room would be cast in that part. So, well, good Pamela thing Anderson, for Erica, she came along. I don't doubt that for a minute. I mean, that that yeah. may it may not be true. It may be true, may not. Um, but you know what? Given um, everything else that we've heard and seen with Stephen, I I wouldn't doubt that for a second. You know, but you never know. You never know. Um, but, but Pamela already had her sex tape out by then, right? So they probably... Stephen I think probably that came thought, out afterwards. That was around 95, oh, oh, I think. Okay. So a few years later. I Yeah, I never I never had a thing for her. I just... I didn't even know who she was. I had to, I had to have somebody explain to me who she was. I didn't even know. Because she, she was doing t- television work and I wasn't yeah. watching... The she last thing really I wanted to do when I got home. Wire. Yeah, the, the last thing I wanted to do when I got home at, while working in television was put the TV on. Yeah. So um I never would have known who was on unless they were on before I you know was you know I was I still knew who Jim Rockford was. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. I mean under under siege was a huge hit. And it was yes, it was the gal's biggest hit. Obviously, leading to his disastrous turn on Saturday Night Live, mm. which uh, has never been repeated, and apparently he's still barred from that show for life. Uh, following, yeah, that you know, yeah, and some of the stuff I've read about that is just hilarious. Just reading about it is so hilarious, and, and knowing what I know, not so much that I know, but knowing all the other things that I've heard, um, it's. <laughs> it's especially funny, you know. And um, I just, you think they would vet these people better, don't you? Yeah. A live TV show, don't you think they would vet the the people they're coming on to host it? You know, well, they, give them they, a monologue to do, and maybe one bit, and then out. You know. 
don't don't even Stephen. You can leave. You don't even have to be here for the finish. We'll finish up at one a.m. You can you can. <laughs> you know. I was going to say they probably took one look at the the box office gross, which according to this, just for the USA, was eighty two point three million. Yeah. And that was um, that became a problem for Stephen then because mm. um, with this movie he got a little more legitimacy than he was before that you know he was just one of many Jean Claude Van Damme and Chuck Norris you know he was just one of these many guys that were doing the same thing the same gig and um, but suddenly he got a he and his agents, you know, and everybody started, had these um, expectations that, well, the next one will be bigger and the next one will be bigger and the next one will be bigger. Okay. And, but the thing is that Steven's movies only ever made about $60 million or so, you know, but the thing was that it only cost 10 to make. So if that, so if you're making 60 and spending 10, then you're doing pretty damn good. You know, and you can sustain a career doing that sort of thing. So the problem for Stephen was his movies then started to cost $60 million to make. So if you're spending 60 and you're only making 89, you're not making any money. Because the, the rule of thumb is you need to be you need to bring in two and a half times what you spent in order to show a dime of profit. Yeah. And to be honest, so 1992 was Segal's probably best year in the business, I would like to say, because not only did he have Under Siege, over at 20th Century Fox, he had Marked for Death, which is actually a major yes. improvement for a that's a better that That's better than anything he ever did at Warner Brothers. Yeah. Marked for Death, I mean, it's like, wow, Steve, Steven has to go to Universal to do that? I mean, Warner Brothers couldn't come up with, with that? I mean, that was my, at the time, that's what I was saying. Yeah. You know, we do all these things with him and then he goes somewhere else and does this great stuff, you know? Yeah, and that was uh, Dwight Little who directed that movie. Yeah, and yeah. it really is. And and I play it up to the fact that the villain in that movie was fantastic. A guy by the name of Basil Wallace, who played yes. uh, yeah. Screwface, the Jamaican bad guy, who was yeah. on another level as a bad guy. Yeah. for a movie. Yeah. you know, more than William yeah. Forsyth in Out for Justice yeah. was. But oh, uh, God, it was. Yeah. It was definitely, you know, a great year for Steven Seagal. And, and I guess it kind of just all and went the thing is, as soon as he did. And it was. And, and the thing is, because I, I know one of the other things you want to talk about is Passenger 57. So we did. So, you know, we had those in the same year. And so Steven comes out and he does um, Under Siege. And except that he had this great supporting cast in it, you know, we were all lamenting the fact that Stephen wasn't even doing this karate crap, the martial arts stuff. He wasn't even doing that as well as Wesley Snipes was doing in yeah. Passenger 57, which was Die Hard on a Plane. Yeah. You know? And um, and and that was a remarkable thing for us. And, um, and that was, um, I think that might have been one of the things that sort of propelled Wesley into another um, a much higher level was doing that movie definitely you know, because he had, he had certainly done well enough with the spike lee thing he had done uh jungle fever he'd yeah. certainly done well enough with that um but then when he moves into passenger 57 and becomes an action hero and you could see 
even when he's wearing the shirt, you could see this guy was in great shape and he was much more graceful doing the dance, you know, doing the martial arts yeah, yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. Way, way more graceful than, than Stephen was doing it, you know? Yeah. Well, let's move into Passenger 57, actually, because it's a natural segue from Die Hard on a Boat to Die Hard on a Plane. You know, and I think Warner Brothers may be the only studio to actually do two of these Die Hard clones, for a better word, in the same year. Uh, yeah. Passenger 57, I did go and see this at the theater. And uh, in looking, I hadn't seen it in a number of years. I was kind of shocked to realize that this movie only runs like 80 odd minutes long. It's I know, really short. No, no, really. If it was 10 minutes shorter, it wouldn't qualify as a feature. <laughs> it's true. It's Honest true. God, you need to be you need to be at least 70 minutes to qualify as a feature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, originally apparently but I guess that's all they had to say. Uh, you know, I guess yeah, they had exactly. that's all they had to say. <laughs> you know? Maybe it's Die Hard on a plane that also incorporates a fairground <laughs> a good portion yes. of a movie. Yes. But no, um yeah. I guess there was only so much you could do on a plane. But um yeah. apparently now, the only uh, complaint I ever heard about this movie was from a friend of mine from London who was bitching that, that um, why are all the villains British? You guys are so afraid to take on the Arabs now, and you're so afraid to take on black people, and you're afraid to take on Hispanics. Now, the British now are going to be the villains of the world? It's because we're so <laughs> bloody good at it, darling. Oh, I'd say, what, what, was, what was his name? No, no there, there are my Irish relatives who would say, well, it's because, you know, the British really are responsible for all the troubles of the world. Eh. Oh, oh, look at the stony faces I'm greeted with. <laughs> no, it's true. It's, it's true. Uh, on the political side, yeah, it's definitely true. We have uh, a history of but, being bastards. But I'll go to admit, I mean, this was the first time I'd ever seen Elizabeth Hurley uh, was in this movie. Really? Mm. Yeah. Really? Yeah, I, I didn't know of her before this. And it was the first time I'd ever seen Bruce Payne in a movie. And in this, he is ramping up the Hannibal Lecter. Oh, God, to, he is. To a major yes. high. To the point where he is seriously just enjoying this movie way too much. Yeah. He yeah. really is. Um, but apparently, originally, this was envisioned as a Stallone vehicle for Warner Brothers. Is that correct? I don't know. We had a lot of Stallone stuff around. Like he had done Demolition Man for us. So there was always some sort of um, Stallone project if we could get him to do it. And um, and I don't know if he was playing the same game that, that uh, Tom Cruise does at the time. But um, I suspect several mov- several studios probably had a Stallone picture in mind. Like, it's like Tom Cruise. My will shoot the same no, no. Yeah, I know. Okay, now is it is it me that's breaking up, or one of you guys? It's I'm hearing. I'm, I'm, are you I'm hearing fine. my voice? Break I can up hear at you all? fine, Bill. Yeah, we're hearing you fine. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, Andrew, I'm hearing you. Your sound is breaking up sometimes. I'm, I keep. Uh, how do you hear, me, Steve? Is it coming across okay? <clears throat> yeah, coming through fine. That's all that matters. Okay. Then. Okay. Good. Um. The way Tom Cruise does it is that he will engage with several studios at once and they'll develop a project that he's totally in on. And then he just picks whichever one will suit him at the moment and does it. Meanwhile, the others, all the studios, everyone has put millions into developing a project and maybe he'll get back to it and maybe not, you know, like, um, 
edge of tomorrow. Yeah. Live, die, whatever, you know. Um, that had been around for a long, long time before it finally got made. It's a wonderful movie. I highly recommend it. Um, we've already talked about that, though, haven't we? Sometime yes. in the past. We, we okay. have mentioned this in the past, yeah. Because I saw the 3D version of it, and the 3D is exquisite. Absolutely yeah. exquisite. Um, so it may be that Stallone was doing that same thing in his day, you know, when he was in his heyday. I don't know. But there was always a Stallone project around. Yeah, and unfortunately that year it was Stop on My Mom Will Shoot, which he classes as the worst thing he's ever done. Um, also, this Passenger 57 was also offered to Steven Seagal, but he chose Under Siege instead. That was a smart move. It's a better script. Yeah. I mean, Under Siege is a better script. It's it's a better movie. Just imagine Under Siege with Wesley Snipes in it. Okay. If like two years later, when Wesley Snipes is already a name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Just imagine Under Siege with Wesley Snipes. It would have been a much, much better movie, I think. Yeah. Or it would have been LL Cool J and Deep Blue Sea. <laughs> <laughs> well, deeper, bluer. Kill the bitch, keep the bird. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Also offered this role, apparently it was Brian Bosworth, our good old friend from Stone Cold. You know what? I don't know. Well, the thing is, Passenger 57 was a joint venture between us, and I think it might have been Regency. So we were not 100% yeah. in control of it, I don't think. Um, so anything is possible, absolutely anything. I have to tell you, I was very pleasantly surprised with this movie. I wasn't paying as much attention to it as I was to Under Siege. Because Under Siege, um, it's not that Under Siege needed the attention as much as like Peter McGregor Scott sort of demanded it, you know, because that was his big movie. And we all loved him. Uh, Sadly, he passed away a couple of years ago, Um, but we all loved Peter McGregor Scott and we loved working with him and everything. So um, he tended to get our attention a lot better than most others would have. Well, this didn't do nearly as well um, with the critics or the audiences then uh, Under Siege did. Uh, you're looking at an audience score of 38 on Rotten Tomatoes. That's, yeah, again, over 50,000 plus ratings, but 24% on the Tomatometer, which hmm. means that would qualify yet again for our little what's in the bargain bin extravaganza. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a pity, it- but you know what? But again, I would lay that off on your supporting cast. If they spent more money to get a really good supporting cast on it, not that the people in it didn't do excel at their work, but they weren't names that you could sell. Yeah. So well, you had I- Steven Seagal plus you had Tommy Lee Jones that you could sell. Yeah. And Gary Busey and Gary Busey coming off of um, Lethal Weapon just a couple of years before, you know, the yeah. original Lethal Weapon. Uh, it also didn't do quite as well in the box office. We're taking roughly about half of what Under Siege did with 42.9 million in the USI. Hmm. Yeah, but the thing is, it's gained a really big cult following uh, to the point where now, you know, it, it's it's one of those movies that when you see on, you will watch it. Um, yeah. The director was Kevin Hooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
who also and we loved working with him. We yeah. loved Kevin Hooks. I've heard really, good really things kind of work from with. other people who've worked with Kevin Hooks, and he went on to do a movie with Lawrence Fishburne and Stephen Baldwin a few years later called Fled, which was for MGM, I believe. He also did a movie with Patrick Swayze called Black Dog as well. I, I thought for a minute you were going to say Fair Game. No, <laughs> that was Andrew Sipes. <laughs> I don't think Andrew Sipes has ever made anything else in his life, and Steve will find out why next week. <laughs> uh. I'm getting quite a bad vibe from this, uh, <laughs> no, from this no, no. movie. No, you're you going to love it. No, no, no. You'll love it. You haven't been set up. We're not giggling because of that. We are. Have you even seen it? Uh, no, that's nope. why I've got to watch it for the next no, episode. See, Andrew, Andrew hasn't seen it either. I um, have. Oh, have you? Okay. Yeah. The um, It's just that he's heard backstories from me. Oh. And that's why we're giggling. We are giggling over... We we can't wait to hear what you have to say about it, and then you will laugh even more when I tell you what I know about it. Okay, <laughs> this is all going to be That's happening what it is. If, if you're and, watching um, this. This is all going to be happening on the, I don't know. the audio podcast. And the thing is, I haven't I haven't seen a single frame of this movie for decades. Yeah, uh, twenty five years. Talking about. Yeah, for decades. I haven't seen a single frame of this movie for decades. And um, I don't even remember, vaguely remember what it's about or anything. I just remember some of the other experiences we had um, trying to make it. <laughs> but, but that is to come. So, Passenger 57, um, are you kind of surprised by its box office? Well, it's kind of box office failure, but it's cult success. Um, I'm surprised by the poor showing at the box office, but I'm not at all surprised by um, the cult following because it is a really, really good movie for what it is. I mean, understanding what it is, it's um, it executes um, the genre very well. And it, it ticks all the boxes that are necessary for that kind of an action movie. I'm just, I don't know what it, was playing against who was its competition when it came out i have no idea you know so that might be one Under of the siege. reasons it didn't do well you know <laughs> no but uh, yeah i know yeah i know wouldn't that be funny but warner brothers wouldn't do that um but i mean if it if it came out opposite like back to the future three or something like that that would account for it not yeah doing really really well well apart from wesley snipes the other person that came out really well from this movie was tom sizemore you know, Tom Sizemore played uh, Sly Del Vecchio. And when you think of the name Sly, this is why I think maybe this was uh, supposed to be a Stallone <laughs> picture because that's not a name you just throw in there. But Tom Sizemore, you know, yeah. this was the start of his ascent. And, you know, it, it's so sad about Tom Sizemore because he was such a talent. And, it is, uh, but, um, but I remember him in... Um... What was the one with Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette at the Safari? True Romance. True yeah, that romance. was 93. That was a year later. Ah, okay. Uh, that's where I remember Tom Sizemore. That's where I remember first seeing him, even though he went to my school. He graduated from my school, my, my school within the university, the mm, yeah. uh, Temple University School of Communications and Theater. Um, although he's... Um, a number of years behind me, so I wouldn't have known him. But uh, but he but we know who he is. He's in 
my school. When I got into the the um, the University Hall of Fame, I had to put a reel together, and I included um, most of my reel was a was a gag, and the joke never really worked. the The joke I was doing were people saying, "I am, you are." That was their line. You are this, or I am, you know, that sort of thing. And um, and most of them were were like like very quick single cuts of things. But when I got to heat, I had to include heat. Yeah. In that because um, because it's a real adrenaline rush. The only other real adrenaline rush in my reel was uh, from the Matrix when the helicopter is crashing into the building. Um, but with heat, and then I end the clip from Heat with Al Pacino killing Tom Sizemore. And absolutely nobody at the university got the joke <laughs> that it was Tom Sizemore. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Brilliant. One of the things I had in there, was I just saw it recently because I was telling somebody at the university about it, and then I, I sent them a copy of the reel. Um, one of the things was Daffy Duck from Space Jam saying we're the exclusive property of Warner Brothers and he picks up his tail feathers and he, and the Warner Brothers logo is scotch taped to his ass and he kisses it he kisses his own <laughs> ass <laughs> still uh, far better than the sequel oh, god, yeah. yeah oh god I couldn't god, finish the sequel about... Me neither. I absolutely could not finish the sequel it was just so. It was uh, a walking advertisement for HBO Max. Yeah, it was a disappointment. It's not that um, I, I didn't see enough of it to seriously be able to say whether it had any quality at all, you know, other than the fact that it was just a huge disappointment to me. And I couldn't, I, I just. But I you've got, keep a, my you've got eyes a lot open. of love for the original Space Jam. You know, that is um, a very special film for you. Uh, that was, you know, but that was a that was a troubled thing too. You know, I mean, I have really mixed feelings about um Space Jam. On the you know, on the one hand, um my opinion of um I fell in love with the animation people that the 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 ones that actually finished it, Ron Tip and Alice Nabate. You know, absolutely, um, their professionalism and and their ability to tell a story, you know, was just like amazing. You know, but um, Ivan Reitman and his people, my opinion of them just diminished in a in a really really big way. So I have really mixed feelings about Space Jam, and that movie cost. It it came out um, around. The same time, within a year or so of of uh, Waterworld, and Waterworld was excoriated for costing so much money, you know, for the overruns. And um, let me tell you, I think Space Jam might have actually cost more. The difference is that the budget numbers never got out in the public. Yeah, you know, Waterworld was a decent movie, and it made over a hundred million dollars, which um, is the usual meter of of a big hit. You make over a hundred million, you're a big hit. But the thing is that people found out that it cost um, 125 to 130 to make it, and then they were like, "Well, that's not up on the screen. Where did all that money go?" It's you know, so yeah. um, so people were disappointed by that. But Space Jam has been more than that. Well, there's only one way to end uh, Warner Brothers 1992, which was 
possibly one of the biggest movies that they ever had at the time. Certainly one of the, well, it's still classed as the biggest soundtrack seller of all time. Yeah. We have to talk about the bodyguard. (laughs) Yeah, the bodyguard. Yeah. (laughs) Oh man. Bodyguard. That was, um, it was a great experience. I mean, it really was. It was exciting. Um, Kevin Costner was um, riding very, very high still. I mean, he was always um, the postman. I, I think sort of, kind of soured people on in a lot of way with with for Stephen, and that was in or for um, Kevin. But the, you know, that wasn't until 1997. I think when we did that movie. I think that came out probably Christmas of 97. Kevin was. And and um, his producing partner were like everybody loved them on the lot. They were just they were cool to hang out with and stuff. They were doing decent projects. Not everything was great, but they were doing decent projects. And and there there was prestige att- attached to um, working with Kevin Costner and everything. So um, and then the bodyguard and. Um, the typical mo for a movie like that is you know you just and it was the same thing with stars born all the yeah. different iterations of stars born you get some hot young singer type you know although judy garland wasn't exactly young when she was doing that but playing much younger than well actually she wasn't that old when she died she was only in her 40s when she died but she looked like an old lady um you know and then barbara streisand was the the big hot singer thing and then lady gaga but you know you know how many iterations there were before they got to lady gaga i mean beyonce yeah. was in there and you know all these different things so um with the bodyguard um i'm sure it did go through s- sort of those things but whitney houston was just so beautiful on top of um being a great singing talent you know she's yeah. just absolutely gorgeous well, and, in, in speaking of that, The Bodyguard was a movie that was apparently pitched and rejected 67 times. Uh, and this even was supposed to be a project in the 70s for Steve McQueen and Diana Ross at one point. Uh, what made this work in 1992? Was Kevin it Kevin? Yeah, I would say Kevin. Kevin more than Whitney, but Whitney was such a revelation she was a pretty decent actress and then they gave her a really good supporting cast like the woman that plays her sister i don't remember her yes. name but i but i had worked with her on a tv thing just two years earlier so when she was on it and i was telling people you know in the um in in the meetings i was going through oh this this woman's just wonderful we, we had her on this tv show i was doing more and more and you're going to love her. She's beautiful. She's this and that, you know, and everything. And it worked out. I mean, it's, it was um, it was great to be there then. Absolutely. It was a great to be there. Kevin, um, Kevin was really riding high. We built a gym in my building, the building where, um, where I took you through yeah. with Tim Burton's office and all that. They built a gym there for Kevin so that he could stay in shape while, you know, in anticipation of doing that. They would do what they would do is um, like with the Arnold movies and the Sylvester Stallone movies, they would put um, a truck outside, you know, like not a huge tractor trailer, but a truck with um, and they have weights. They would create like a little gym, mini gym there with the weights and stuff like that. And they'd go out there and they'd they would just pump up, they'd pump themselves up and then they'd go on the set and they're all 
like this when it when they would do that, you know. So, um, but Kevin's character never really had moments like that. But they did build a gym for him because they thought that somebody who's this hotshot Secret Service guy probably is going to be have the cut of a military person, you know. Kevin, I never once saw Kevin go to that gym. His wife <laughs> used it a few times. I know on weekends when I'd be there working weekends, you wouldn't believe how many weekends I put in it. Warner Brothers. Um, it breaks my heart to think of how much of my life I put in there, you know, um, that I didn't need to. But um, so Kevin's wife was there a, a, a lot. You know, and then when that movie was over, they turned it into a virtual reality golf thing for for um, Clint Eastwood. <laughs> <laughs> Same space, and it used to be um, it it was a small screening room originally. It was a tiny little screening room. That building had four tiny little screening rooms where you could go and look at something, um, but it wasn't like a huge space. It would be bigger than the space that your big screen is in, Andrew. Yeah, um, but but not it wouldn't seat 90 people you know it's sit maybe 12 or something or, or it could sit clint eastwood if he wanted to go and watch cat videos <laughs> yeah right <laughs> <laughs> yeah only a few of us know um yeah. well the bodyguard for a much loved film and obviously it was uh, a massive hit with the female demographic especially yeah. around that time but it is a movie that also has a, a bit of sad story behind it uh, a, a crew driver by the name of Bill Vitagliano had an onset accident, uh, which resulted in his death. He was operating a scissor lift uh, with a remote control unit. And what he didn't realize was that it was the same remote control signal that was operating another scissor lift. So he uh, managed I guess, you know, I guess all the dominoes fell in, you know, exactly the, the right spot, but he managed to crush himself between two scissor lifts, not, not knowing that the second one, the one behind him was, was responding to the same command as the one he was trying to operate. Um, that didn't actually happen on the studio a lot though, because they, um, a lot of that film was shot. I mean, it had local location and they shot stuff, I believe at the LA sports arena, that big um, thing at the end. Um, but they had rented a warehouse in, um, um, just South and East of downtown where there's a warehouse. It's not unusual to take a warehouse and, and fit it out. We did that with devil's advocate where we had a, a lot of it was shot in New York, but, uh, all the stage stuff was done in a warehouse in Vernon, California, which is a suburb attached to the city of LA. Uh, so that, that actually happened in a warehouse, not on the studio lot. It might have worked out better had it been on the studio lot. You know, it may not have been remote control. It may not have, you know, the safety. Um, there's a lot more attention to safety on the lot because there are yeah. a lot more people around to notice if something is about to go awry. You know, it, it's 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 sad. It's tragic that um, that these things happen. But I know like with, with the um, Alec Baldwin thing on the movie Rust in, in New Mexico, you guys don't see the same news that I see on this. But, you know, like the New Mexico legislature has had people um, introducing legislation there, you know, because we got to get these Hollywood people in line. This shit doesn't happen in Hollywood. Gun accidents 
don't happen in Hollywood. People killed with guns on sets have happened in North Carolina. That you had that camera person operator get killed yeah. in Texas and yeah. in New Mexico. They do not happen in Hollywood. The sh- the, these fly-by-night productions go to places like New Mexico and Texas and North Carolina and Florida because the rules are more lax. They can get away with shit that they can't get away with here. So I I feel insulted that some guy in the legislature is trying to build um, his own career, you know, on the back of Hollywood when this shit doesn't happen here. They go there because those guys are derelict in what they do. I just stepped no. off my soapbox. So <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, it needed to be said. It needed to be said. That's the main thing. Uh, now, the, uh, uh, now the bodyguard, um, one tidbit on the bodyguard I'm, you may not be aware of is the, um, they had hired John Barry to do the score. John Barry was their guy because um, Kevin and his producing team at TIG um, were, um, John had done um, Dances with Wolves and other projects with them. And he was their guy. He was absolutely their guy. So they did the score. They, re- they recorded the score for the movie and, um, and they tested it. And, and then the cards came back about there were no- some notes or whatever about the score on it. Well, John Barry had already moved on to do Chaplin and was yeah. knee deep in, in not just scoring, but recording Chaplin. And they asked John to to drop that and and come back to the bodyguard, and he and he refused. He couldn't. I mean, the, they said at the studio, "Well, he refused." Well, fuck. I mean, he was he was doing the same thing on another movie, um, and it's unfortunate because I'm sure John would have done the changes they wanted to do um, if he could have. Chaplin then he got nominated for an Oscar for the score on Chaplin. But then, the, but then he missed out on the highest selling soundtrack album of all time, yeah. you know, with that. But they got Alan Silvestri in to do that score, and he did that whole thing in, in a matter of days. Wow. Honest to God, in a matter of days, did that score, you know. Now, the soundtrack um, is mostly on the weight, it's weighted by Whitney Houston and her stuff, you know. I mean, that, I, I'm sure that's the the reason for the big success of it um but still the guy who does the score and produces um that cd and everything they get a big cut of the money so so john barry missed out and alan silvestri proved what a real pro he is and um and the studio has gone back to him many times to do to do stuff that needed to be, to, to be fixed or whatever well the that song that just it it oh, needs no introduction. The yeah, the Dolly, Dolly Parton, Parton song. Yeah. I will always love you. That was at the top of the British chart for forever, but forever. Yeah. It it seemed like the early nineties. Both Kevin Costner movies. You had um, I will always love you, and um, the the one from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. That also spent oh, yes. at number everything one. Everything I the, do, I do for you. Everything yeah. I do, the Brian, Brian Adams, Adams one. Yeah. And then Love is All Around from Four Weddings. <laughs> yeah, but Kevin Costner wasn't in that one, so it yeah. doesn't follow the pattern. But yeah, that one as well. But uh yeah, it seemed like every been. time you turned on the TV, you turned on the radio. Well, how about the song that Bill Nye uh, does at the beginning of Love Actually? <laughs> okay. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
just met well, him last week. Oh, not only was the soundtrack a big hit, but the poster was also a big hit. Yeah. Um, it's a blue grainy image of yeah. Bruce Willis. Yeah, we were still in our blue period then. All of our yes. posters, if you go back, yeah. all true. our posters are blue. Yeah, it's still going with Steven Seagal in Exit Wounds, the exact same blue hue on yeah. it. But um, what some people may not know, and sorry if this ruins the image for any woman out there who bought that poster, the woman Kevin Costner is carrying in that poster is not Whitney Houston. It is no, actually her not. double. Yes. <gasps> yes. Because it's in the rain. Yeah. It's raining in there, too. Yeah. So, well, they so, sold posters of Steve McQueen jumping the wire in The Great Escape. Yeah. There were posters of that. The motorcycle in the air um, scaling the wire. And it was really Bud Eakins. Yeah. Very true. Now, uh, apparently the test audiences jeered Whitney's performance. Is this true? I don't know. I wasn't there. I find it hard to believe. What did you think of her performance? To be honest, I mean, she was not, I'd never seen her act in anything before. And I've got to admit, when I saw the movie, I think she did a brilliant job in it. I did too. Mm. It it depends on who they recruited for it. You know, if people, when they go, sometimes they won't tell you what the movie is. Um, I can't believe they wouldn't have done that with this. Like with Harry Potter, when when we did the previews for Harry Potter, we did not tell people what they were seeing, just that they were seeing a um, kid-related thing, that they were they were looking for families, they were looking for young kids, and they wanted adults too, sort of thing. And, and the first couple of films, we actually did um, screenings with mostly kids, and then later on in the same day, we'd do... Um, you know, more adult people, but they did not tell people what Harry Potter was because there was so much anticipation about those movies. They didn't think they'd get a real score from it. They wanted to, and and none of those films actually scored well. When you, when you look at how the scoring system would go on the previews, none of the Potters did what I would consider to be a good score. I mean, they were scoring in the sixties, you know, and, um, that Pardon is me? where, funnily enough, the 60s is where the audience score has hit with this. Uh, 64% audience score for the bodyguard, 38% well, critics. But, but, you're, but, you're looking at, but you're looking at a finished product. This is mm. after it's all been finished. When, when we were scoring, when we gave audiences scorecards to, that we could tabulate to see what the reaction was, you know, um, the Harry Potter films didn't do well. Most of the visual effects were not in there. I get it that people didn't understand even though we would explain to them ahead of time this is this is unfinished you're going to see stuff especially visual effects especially quidditch it's not even close to being finished but we have to show you a little bit of of um, like what the concept work is just so you you know where it fits in it it wouldn't do for us to pull it out of the movie altogether we have to show you the really rough stuff and my brother you know, exactly my age, my twin brother went to one or two of those. I remember the first one he went to was um, the prisoner of Azkaban. And uh, cause he happened to be in Chicago when we were screening it. So I invited him to come. And, um, I'm, and I know afterward, he looks he did this really serious face. You're not putting it out like this, are you? And I said, no, didn't you listen to the announcement at the beginning? 
you know, so I have to, and he's an intelligent person. So I have to believe that if he didn't quite get that disclaimer at the beginning, then that's probably what the problem was with, with a lot of other people. The big thing with Harry Potter though, was um, we couldn't tell people what it was because the, everybody wanted to see those movies. You know, whatever kind of glimpse they could get, just like the Batman, people s- sneaking cameras onto the onto the sets. You know, everybody wanted to see what the costumes looked like and and everything. You just that this is where the publicity machine sort of is working against you. You know, um, but I'll tell you when they would make the announcement, and I witnessed this eight different times over ten years when they would say, "Well." Welcome to the screening. We're so happy to hear to see you here. The movie you're about to see is Harry Potter and, you know, eight different iterations of that. And you would think that Paul McCartney just walked out onto the stage. The, <laughs> the crowds went crazy, absolutely crazy. But we couldn't tell them that's what they were going to see because um, you would you you didn't have enough seats to satisfy all the people that wanted to see it. And if somebody was going to such great lengths to see it, then the scores are skewed. We couldn't successfully do previews on the studio lot because the fact that people were on the studio lot tended to rate, the scores tended to be higher because they were so impressed with the facility that they, oh, I'm at Warner Brothers. I'm doing it, you know, I mean, it, it's bullshit, but that's what happens. That's how people would react to that sort of stuff. So you had to go into communities and do and do these previews. Um, I find it hard to believe that that um, that she would have been singled out by a whole lot of people for a bad performance. But it may be that they were recruiting a Kevin Costner audience and not a Whitney Houston audience, you know, or not an African-American audience. I don't remember where the screenings were done the bodyguard i just flat out don't remember but um if they've gone to the magic johnson theaters on crenshaw as opposed to wherever they went i'll bet the whitney houston scores would have been through the roof and and maybe kevin's wouldn't have been so great well speaking of bringing people in apparently kevin costner brought in david foster to produce on this picture yeah could be he was in my building he was um so I showed you where my office was when the window was broken. Remember yeah. I was telling talking about the uh, uh, David Foster was. Um, so if I'm sitting at my desk, he was up one and over one. He was, yeah. you know, I used to see David every day in the building. David you know. Foster was a huge influence on me when I was first getting started out. He was one of the first producers to really give me a, a bit of an education about starting out in this business. And uh, I didn't even know that he'd passed on until I saw it at the Academy Awards when it was in the in memorandum. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, and, I knew because I saw it in the trades. Yeah. Yeah. And it was really sad. But uh, in speaking of the bodyguard, a couple. He didn't give you here. the classic advice not to get into the business. <laughs> no. Never put your daughter no. on the stage. You know what? I I had gone when I was fourteen. I went to um, I attended a um, a summer school program on filmmaking. It was a it, you had to be committed to it because it was eight thirty in the morning until four in the afternoon every day during our summer break. And um, so you had to show some real commitment to do that. And um, and when that was finished, 
I had gone to, um, my father had run into a producer in a bar. This is how stuff works. Um, and they were shooting in my, in the village where I grew up that, and there was, they were using a church building that dated to the, um, the actual building was like the 1800s, 1890 or something like that. But the, the congregation had been in existence since 1690. And, um, so they were using this church and this conversation ensues with my father and this guy. And, and my father calls me and says, come up, you know, come up and, you know, I want you to meet somebody, you know, and all this stuff. And he took me over to the set. I met, I met Gary Merrill, um, was one of the stars of it. And Delphi Lawrence, um, a, a British actress who, um, um, like Raquel Welch really wanted this part, but Delphi Lawrence had beat her out. The only thing I'd ever seen Delphi Lawrence in was a man from uncle episode. Um, and then I met the, uh, the director, the director was from another town, a borough near where I grew up. Uh, but he had lived in Hollywood for a million years. And, and I told him, I was introduced to him as a young cinematographer um, because I don't think the producer understood. I don't think my father understood what I was really interested in. Um, so I'd met, you know, so Richard Bartlett was the director and he's, and, and I said, he said, well, I understand that you're, you're studying cinematography. And I said, no, I'm, I'm really trying to study directing. And he said, oh, <laughs> you know, go to medical school instead. <laughs> then you can cure your own ulcers. <laughs> well, as we are getting to the point here, just a couple of quick fire ones to go off with on the bodyguard so we can wrap up here. Uh, the Academy Awards ceremony it was featured was filmed at the Pantages Theatre, yes. which me and Bill know very well from seeing The Last Night of yes. Hamilton. Yes. And the guy who was the host for the Oscars on Night was Robert Worrell, who you may remember yes. as Alexander Knox from the first Batman movie. Mm. But did you know that Robert Worrell was the writer of Billy Crystal's jokes for the Oscars? Yes, yes. Oh. And, and he was um, Kevin's co-star in Bull Durham. Yes, very true. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So, uh, also, when you check your um, WhatsApp, I sent you a picture. I cropped the picture I sent you earlier where it's just the frolic room. Right. Okay. Yeah, the frolic room. We they will put get a bouncer on the door. They put a bouncer on the door. They had, when we went in, there was one bouncer. When we came out, there were two. They put bouncers on the doors. It's a very small place. Um, and they put bouncers on the doors to keep the homeless out. The homeless are trying to go in there just to use the bathroom. But it's a right. really small sort of dive bar, but it's very show busy. I wish you and I had gone in there. I Next really time. wish we had gone in there when we saw Hamilton. <laughs> Next time. But uh, The Bodyguard was the second highest grossing movie in the world in 1992, behind yeah. only Disney's Aladdin that was yep. released that yeah. year. Yeah. So realistically, this was the highest grossing live action movie in the world in 1992 yeah. mm -hmm. it was a good movie i mean all the stars aligned on that one and just to end this off there was originally a bodyguard sequel in the planning stages where kevin costner offered princess diana of wales the role uh which would be in the sequel of who'd be protecting she received the script the day before she died and never got to um... read it I I know about the Princess Diana thing. 
vaguely. I, I don't know any details, but I know that they were hoping against hope that they could get her to do it. They thought that that would be a coup of all time. Um, she would have gotten it years before then, though. In 1997, Kevin... Um, was not riding so high unless he was trying to look for some way to redeem himself for the postman. Um, I just think the timing is off. I think, I think any um, attempt to get um, the princess of Wales on the picture would have happened a year or two before then. It's, it's, it's great to frame it the way you did, you know, and and wouldn't that be sort of kismet in a way, but um, I don't believe it. Okay. Well, we have deep delved, in a way, into 1992. There were many other great films from Warner Brothers that were released that year. We couldn't talk about them all, otherwise we'd be here till three in the morning. Yeah. And I can already see Steve starting to flag on his end. (laughs) I must be the only one that's not flagging. It's pretty late for you guys. I can actually see it getting dark behind you. That, yeah, that, I've been I've been noticing that it's gone. Yeah, it started up very bright, and the as you can find out in the last episode, and now it's got dark and dark and dark. Well, the I don't I didn't have the lights on there. It was just the sunlight coming through, and now yeah. you can see the reflection of my fill light there. The sort yeah. of <laughs> Bill, always fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day today to come and relive some history with us, set the record straight in a number of instances and yeah. share some stories that probably no one has ever heard before. And revisit um, some of these movies that, um, I mean, I, there isn't one on here um, on your list. I wrote, I kept score here. There isn't a single one on here. I didn't like, well, I mean, these we were go. all, these were all good experiences for me. I don't have, uh, there's not a single Malcolm X there. brilliant i knew you were going to get that in (laughs) or memoirs of an invisible man (sighs) i liked memoirs of an invisible man that was um i i gotta tell you the the, um we had a very early meeting with um representatives from ilm because we'd gone to ilm to do the the package and everything and they gave what i came away from the initial meeting with them, we met with them a few times, but the initial meeting with them, where I came away, I, I got the best lesson of my life. And that was, if you can shoot it practically, do it. If there's a way to do it in a practical way, do that. It's going to be way better than visual effects can ever do. Mm. And that's, um, and I've firmly held on to that belief from 30 years. Oh. And it's and it's the John Carpenter movie. No one ever remembers John Carpenter did. <laughs> so... Yeah. I went to see that one at the cinema as well. Oh, poor guy. Memoirs of Invisible Man? Yep. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that was a 12. I went the in there mistakenly the thought, thinking it was going to be a funny <coughs> Jerry Jace movie, but yeah. yeah. Uh, well, it, it kind of failed in, in that sense. But, you, but you know, Sam Neill made a really good villain. Yeah. yeah. It's important to get really first-class supporting cast in your movies. Daryl Hannah doesn't offer a whole lot. That that was before, but but she's not bad in it. But, you know, but she was there only because she was um you know, a nice-looking woman and and had a recognizable name and all that. I mean, she's I I hate to be unfair to her, but um, you know, Splash, wasn't she great in Splash? Yes. Um but the movie just suffers because there's um because chevy chase is in it to tell you the truth if you want to be honest about it (laughs) (laughs) that's why the movie didn't do well 
We're getting we're getting into the dangerous territory here, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> and with and with that in mind, uh, let's. Uh, I think it's time to call it a day. Uh, big thanks once again, Bill, for joining thanks us. For having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. It's always a pleasure to pick your brains and hear all those wonderful stories that you picked up over the years working in the film industry and particularly. Yeah. At yeah. Warner Brothers. Um, I want to send a big thank you to you, Andy, for coming up with this idea because it's yeah. always a good plan to just focus on something in deep dive. And I hope that you watching this have managed to get something out of it. If you're interested in following us, you can click the likes or the, the thumbs up. I don't even know what's going on with YouTube these days. And I don't even think they know either. Follow us on there. You can also follow us on. It, 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 everything basically facebook twitter linkedin, LinkedIn. Come join us on the linkedin page <laughs> it's our most successful page so far <laughs> i think we've also got an instagram just to, to, you know oh, cool cool just, we, just find us find us anywhere come on talk to us we, we want your questions you know yeah, maybe they can we will suggest get the um, directions for you to go yeah you know some of the things so, um, you know. And be sure to catch me, Steve, and Bill fully deep diving into fair game. <laughs> I'm sure if it's not available we have to, in the future. We have to, uh, it, w- it would be, what would be so cool would be to just, if we could do a group watch of that, you know, that we could probably do it. I mean, um, Andrew and I have already talked about possibly um, getting a hold of a digital copy of that somewhere it's not hard because it's on voodoo and amazon and you know and then like running that on zoom and then you could have like an unlimited well i don't think unlimited but if you get the subscription you get at least 100 people that can tune in yeah. and, and watch along with you have a watch party yeah. of it that would be i would love to see what the i i would like to just be an observer like, let me <laughs> tune in with everybody else and kind of see there, what everyone's reaction to this there is. There is no way you would be able to watch that movie and not want to say some things about it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, that's for the future. We need to work out exactly what the hell we're going to be doing with that one. For now, though, it is a goodbye from me. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. We'll see you again shortly. Bye.